Welcome to Scarlet Fever, the sports podcast of the Daily Nebraskan. I'm Grant Hansen alongside senior sports editor Landon Wirt, and it is another big week for Oscar Athletics. Nebraska women's soccer closed their non-conference schedule with back-to-back losses to Arizona State and Arizona. The Huskers are now 4-4. Four four. We'll discuss where this group goes from here. Plus, Nebraska volleyball dropped its first match of the season on Saturday, surrendering a 2-0 lead to Utah, who promptly lost to Boise State 3-1 on Monday. The Huskers followed that up with a loss to Stanford on Tuesday night. This is the first time Nebraska's experienced back-to-back losses since the 2018 season. So what does this mean for John Cook's squad going forward? We'll discuss. But first, we can't ignore the elephant in the room. It is the 50th anniversary of the game of the century, and Nebraska is headed down to Norman, uh, not on a tractor, folks, uh, to face Oklahoma in a reunion of old foes. Can the Huskers put a dent in Spencer Rattler in the Sooner offense? We will discuss with assistant sports editor Martin Hers. That's all coming up next on Scarlet Fever. All right, hey all, welcome back to another episode of Scarlet Fever. Again, you can follow Landon on Twitter at Landon Wirt, W-I-R-T. And you can find me at Hanson15 underscore Hanson, H-A-N-S-E-N. Don't forget, this is a Daily Nebraskan podcast, so give at Daily NEB and at DN Sports a follow for all your campus news from the students who live it every day. And as we start the fourth episode here of Season 2 slash 3 of Scarlet Fever, we're going to debut a new segment today, and we'll start most of our podcasts out with this, I think, from here on out. But uh, it's just, what's the best thing you saw this week? And it's pretty simple. What's the best thing you saw this week? So Landon, what's the best thing you saw this week? Yeah, I'll just start with the thing that make me made me happiest and best. It was just NFL Sunday. God, that rocked. I really yes. missed like sitting down on my couch, watching Red Zone and watching games on my laptop with full crowds, tracking all my fantasy football scores, mm. tracking all the bets that I made. Like just sitting back there was just like such a really rewarding and happy feeling. I really missed the NFL. I love the NFL, and specifically. I love the Chiefs game. The Chiefs game, the Chiefs make me very, very upset for three hours each week. It's my favorite tradition to just get really, really stressed out watching the Chiefs. And the first half against Cleveland was my worst nightmare. (laughs) Cleveland was able to run the ball. Nick Chubb, it seemed like, was getting 15 yards every time Baker Mayfield handed it off. And when he wasn't handing it off, the Browns seemingly had dudes wide open running crossing routes. I hated it. The Chiefs were losing by 12. But to see that second half comeback and just to see Arrowhead roar like that uh, was something I hadn't seen since the first playoff game that the Chiefs were in on that Super Bowl run against Houston. I hadn't seen Arrowhead that loud since then. It was just a really cool, it was a really cool thing to see, and it made my heart warm that the Chiefs were able to come back in that game and win and take advantage of the Browns doing stupid Cleveland Brown things that they always do and get to 1-0 and against a, t- a Browns team that is, dare I say it, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so that made me happy. The return of NFL football just rocked. It was, it's was. it been great seeing college football back with fans. I'm starting to get used to that now. Now getting like and seeing NFL football back with fans was just even cooler. And then on top of that, uh, seeing the cool new stadiums with fans in them was awesome right. as well. Uh, seeing SoFi Stadium with yeah. fans for the first time, that stadium is just absolutely beautiful. And then overstepping my bounds a little bit here, but also seeing Vegas' stadium mm-hmm. on Monday night was just awesome. Um, and I've seen Buffer with the intro. Yeah, yeah I've seen cool. it a couple. I've seen it full a couple times this summer because, for example, uh, Allegiant Stadium had the Gold Cup between the United States and Mexico. They hosted that final, uh, so it's been full for not football things, but seeing it full for 
a football game like that was pretty awesome. How would you like to get paid millions of dollars to basically show up to events and say two words? Like, that's what Bruce Buffer does. He yeah. shows up and says, it's time. Like, he gets paid so much money to just say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a dream job. Being, like, one of those, like, boxing, ring-announcing people, if sports journalism doesn't work out, like, getting in there and just saying, it's time, or yeah. let's get ready to rumble, like, that job would just be so sweet. Like, I would love that. That's that's a dream job. How do you do that? Like, is there is there, like, is there, like, a line of, like... He's really good at it. I know, but, like, is there, like... <laughs> You get to get like an internship or something. Like, how do you start doing yeah, that? Like, knows? being a ring announcer. I'm sure it just starts locally, but still, like, that's just like an interesting career path to take. But one that would be so awesome. NFL football definitely ranks up there really highly for me from this last week. Uh, in our DN fantasy league, I put a beat down on uh, Jason Hahn. That was that was incredible. <laughs> I am. I, so- I, did, I, I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> I'm sadly 0 and 1. Tragic start. I actually went. I'm in four fantasy football leagues. I went 1 and 3. Just putrid. Just kind of like my picks in 1 2 on you. Just putrid yeah. so far. Just we'll carrying get those over later from that. on in the in the episode. But yeah, that was that was a lot of fun this week. And again, like I don't know if I would enjoy you know, NFL football as much if fantasy football wasn't a thing. I, that's so much of uh, what I enjoy doing on Sundays. For me, you know, I got to go with the best thing I saw this weekend was the 9-11 tunnel walk. And I know we'll talk about this a little bit later maybe um, when we bring Martin in here in a second. But, man, like, that was so emotional and impactful. And and, and don't get me wrong, like, I, I get emotional every tunnel walk, so that, that's not, like, anything new for me. I just, like... The whole idea of the whole concept of the thing, you know, the Husker power, um, the fireworks, you know, at night games when they use the lights, um, the whole thing is just so cool because it's 85,000 to 90,000 people united around one thing. And, and, and so that's cool to me in itself. Then you add on top of it, Damian Jackson bringing out the flag, the video that they showed on the Jumbotron, which I had already seen, but still was a huge emotional impact on me. Um, and then you had the first responders who came out there, much like they did 20 years ago against Rice. Um, you know, man, like it even felt like when when Damien, you know, took the flag and started running out onto the field, it even felt like he was like running faster than they usually do, you know. It, like it was an emotional charge for him. That was so cool. And I and like I can say without a doubt like that okay, like I have yet to cry during a tunnel walk yet. That was the closest I've ever been. I won't lie, it was getting a little dusty in the press box on Saturday. I can attest that was cool. I hadn't watched. I think I don't know, remember who I leaned over to and said it. I think it was Justin, and I said, "Yeah, that's that's the first time I'd seen that video all the way through." It was it was a very very nice touch. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. The, salute. the oh. way that Nebraska was able to honor that, and then the flyover was cool, and yes. it was just like all really beautiful and emotionally charged. And you saw similar scenes like that all around college football last weekend, but Nebraska just did a really just a hats off to them. Like they did, whoever was in charge of that did a really really brilliant job. Yeah, the creative team was was emo- so impactful. I think, and and again, that's from someone who wasn't even alive, you know, when when this event happened. So. Uh, that was that was incredible, and then Nebraska was able to pick up the win uh, against Buffalo, twenty-eight to three. That's how we'll segue into this. We'll bring on one of the assistant editors for the DN, uh, in Martin Hers, one of the writers as well for uh, Husker football at the DN. So, welcome on, Martin. 
Hey, Grant, thanks for having me on. I just got back from my econ class, finally picked up my textbook access for today. So <laughs> Let's go. Four That's weeks <laughs> in, yes. We are killing it, the editors are in school. Who yeah. says we're just sports editors? We do school stuff sometimes. <laughs> well, your honest reaction, Martin, to the 28-3 win, you know, in many ways it could have been as high as 58-3 to if you take the three touchdowns taken off by penalties plus the three missed field goals. Um, but still, from the defense, it was a great performance. And from the offense, really, if you take away, again, those three killer penalties, it was a pretty complete game from them, too. Right. I think one thing that was missing from the offense last year was explosive plays. We saw the broken two-ray touchdown near the end of the half. And it kind of caught some people by surprise, like myself. When you go back and watch, there's multiple receivers open. So I guess that's one good thing is that, yes, the offense – didn't have the best days successfully of just moving the ball. Well, they were able to capitalize huge on just big explosive plays in general. Your take, Landon. Yeah, um, you know, I have been looking at this from the perspective of, holy cow, Nebraska's defense. Like, being able, when what Nebraska was able to do is take a team that has a very clear identity in Buffalo and completely throw them out of rhythm. Kyle Van Treese has started X amount of games for Buffalo in a row, never thrown. I believe he ended up with, like, maybe did he get into the 50s with pass attempts? Mm -hmm. 52, I think, was the number. He never attempted that many passes in his entire career at Buffalo. Buffalo likes to run the ball down your throat, chew clock, and then make passes when they had to. If Nebraska were to win, I believe we said it on this podcast— you have to force the Bulls to throw to that untested group of wide receivers. And boy, did he have to. And it, it just didn't look very good for that offense, which just totally caught me off guard. And credit goes to Nebraska's defense. Buffalo didn't enter Nebraska's red zone. I mean, just what a dominant, dominant effort from those guys. Just so impressive to me and that's just my biggest takeaway from looking at how Nebraska was able to slow down a great running back in Kevin Marks Jr. and a quality quarterback in Kyle Van Treese it was just the the defensive performance was just holy just holy cow it was great yeah well you talk about the front seven for Nebraska and, and the general impact that those guys have and people forget that linebacking core is pretty much entirely underclassmen like if you take Jojo Doman out who is technically listed as a nickel. Uh, you look at every one of these players here, including the defensive player of the week in Luke Reimer, and they're all sophomores and redshirt freshmen and freshmen. Reimer is a sophomore uh, for this team. Uh, as you look down the rest of the lineup, Garrett Nelson for the Cornhuskers um, is a... Sorry about that. Sophomore. I thought he was a sophomore. I wasn't 100% sure. And then Nick Henrich, a redshirt freshman. All those guys provided a huge impact against Buffalo on Saturday. And the thing about JoJo is that Buffalo just didn't run plays to him. I know JoJo's stats don't pop out, but just him being on the field makes life so much easier for these underclassmen linebackers that but when Buffalo calls a run, they have a good idea of where the play is going to. That makes life so much easier. So just having JoJo on the field makes that defense much, much better. 
His presence, yeah. And Nebraska's linebacking core has really been one of the stories for me mm-hmm. in this young season so far. Like, going in, we kind of knew what we knew what we were going to get with the defensive line, and the defensive line has been great, too. That's storyline number two, arguably, from this defense. And we knew what the secondary was going to be, right, mostly with all these experienced and returning players. But what we weren't really sure of is, like, what the I don't know I mean we, we we knew what we had in a sense with Jojo and Reimer but just the way that unit's been able to step up and play man it's it's been great to watch so the linebacking core has been great and Martin's right like Buffalo really opted just to not <laughs> basically just not in general when the 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 ball was placed near Doman's side so they looked good uh and the defense as a whole I mean you haven't allowed a touchdown in all this this time six quarters I believe we're at it's it's been it's been really really impressive to watch them play so far Luke Reimer defensive player of the week for the Huskers 16 total tackles seven of those solo tackles he also had one interception that came at a really big moment in the game at which point it was 14 to 3 huge it really turned the game totally on its head and secured the win for Nebraska so he earns that defensive player of the week honor well deserved Jojo Doman was actually third on the team with tackles. He had five, four solos, um, and a quarterback hurry. And then you did mention at the beginning Kyle Van Treese did end up with an even 50 attempts. This team put together uh, three, or only allowed three total points. That's the first time since that's happened since Michigan State uh, just nearly 10 years ago when the Spartans were ranked ninth in the country. It's been a long time since Nebraska's had a defensive performance like they did on Saturday. Yeah, and the fact that they did so, correct me if I'm wrong, without uh, really, I mean, you would think a performance like that, like three points, really struggling to get like anything going, you would have thought Nebraska would have forced like three or four turnovers, right? right? But you just have the one, the Reimer interception of Van Trees is the only thing that Nebraska was able to do in that department. What helped... I think, and this is one of like this is like storyline B from that game, right? Are the missed kicks, mm-hmm. like the missed That's kicks so and weird. the fourth down stops, like that is as good as a turnover in and of itself. And the, the defense talked about on Monday the importance of like forcing more turnovers and winning on third downs. And yes, both of those things can be improved upon. And Buffalo was able to have some some success early on there. But where Nebraska was able to really do it is when okay, sure, like Buffalo can pick up a third and fourteen on its own 20, right? But when when Buffalo gets to Nebraska's side of the field, that's not happening. So, I mean, yes, it's important to win on those downs, but as long as it's not coming, like, on Nebraska's side of the field, it's not really too big of a deal. Yeah. Well, and then you talk about Reimer again. One of those tackles he had was on a fourth down. And the, re- the ability of Reimer and Garrett Nelson to to read some of these plays in that linebacking core and, and quickly you know go work from side to side on the field. It's it's something that I think I've really noticed the last couple of games more than anything else, uh, and they, they provide such a huge lift to this team. That linebacking core is heading in the right direction. Right, and what do you mix up of a really good defensive line led by Ben Stilley, who's who are able to move around offensive linemen? It just makes the linebackers' job a lot easier to rack because they can see more clearly where how the play is developing over time, right? Because because if the defensive line isn't able to generate that push, yes, I think the linebackers still do a pretty valid job, but it'll be much harder to see their good play on display. So I think like the front sevens like being in sync together has really made this our run defense like finally respectable 
I know it's only Buffalo and Fordham, but I mean we saw it at times with Illinois too, like first quarter, fourth quarter, where when this front seven's in sync, nothing's getting by them. Yeah. It, I mean, just going back to, like, I, I mean, I know it's not Jarrett Patterson either, right? But, like, Marks Jr. is still a really good back. He was on, you know, the preseason watch list for best back in the country, which the name of that award I cannot remember. But, I mean, Buffalo's no slouch team that was in the MAC championship game last year. Being able to do that against them is great. And in addition to how well the linebacking core has been playing, God, the D-line's been great. Mm. I mean, Ben Stilley's been really good. DeAndre Thomas and Damian Daniels have both been excellent excellent DeAndre noted fullback uh, yeah. DeAndre Thomas yeah. as well thought I would throw that in but yeah I mean the way Nebraska's front seven looks right now is nasty and you know I get it the 22 point underdogs thing but that defense has all the confidence in the world ahead of Saturday which is really what you want because you know we've said this all along right that Nebraska's defense with all the experience and all the quality players and depth I mean you talk about the linebacking core think about a guy like Chris Kolarevich who I always just see he doesn't he's not that like you know he doesn't make the get the most snaps right but every time he's in there he seems to be making plays Nebraska's deep in that front seven and to be confident like that and with a defense that I've been I've been saying will be able to keep Nebraska in most games, having them firing on all cylinders is just so huge ahead of this Saturday. Well, it is a big game. In fact, it's it is? a big noon kickoff <laughs> coming Saturday. The game of the century, 50-year anniversary as we put a bow on Buffalo and move ahead as the Huskers really in a game that we all both thought it was a must-win in terms of making a bowl game, get it done against Buffalo. They now turn the page to Oklahoma and my question is both of you guys are credentialed you're both heading down there so are you taking a tractor and if so when are you leaving yeah yeah the tractor leaves tomorrow morning uh hopefully get there in a couple of days give us four give us 48 hours uh be nice and slow hugging that right lane of the highway and just god that commercial feel disrespectful or what man (laughs) yeah for those of you who didn't see it fox sports is big noon kickoff and i get it like i get it it's trying to be aesthetic and that's cool and all but man did it come off as just executives thinking that's what we do here we do not drive tractors period uh but you guys are heading down there to Norman. Uh, biggest key as you look ahead to this game, it is so big. Can Nebraska find a way to hang around, and can this defense slow down the Oklahoma offense? Well, that's a easier said than done, obviously. <laughs> but I think one thing, a couple of things are working in Nebraska's favor. First, it's the Oklahoma's receivers are kind of thin right now. They have a couple injuries. I think Theo, forget his last Theo name. Theo Weiss, yeah. Theo Weiss. He was a, he's been the number he was the number two receiver last year. He's out for a while. I think Drake Stoops is also out. Mm-hmm. So that's two kind of significant blows. That doesn't mean Oklahoma's receiving core is still going to be great. But I think the more important question is how how is the front seven going to respond to all the moving parts each play Oklahoma has? Oklahoma's going to be running counters. But also they're going to be running the same type of play three to four times, just by reading the reaction of Nebraska's defenders each time. They run once they run the same play again the fifth time, it's actually not going to be the same play. It's going to be the same motions. So it's like going to be how does Nebraska's defense handle that for reaction time? Martin, I love that you you are talking about this right now because I spent the entirety of last night watching Oklahoma film, and that is what I learned. Because on Monday, you hear this, oh, we've got to stop their gap scheme runs, right? 
But what exactly does that mean? I've watched enough Oklahoma. I know that they are frequently able to get guys open in the run in the play action pass. And I've wondered to myself, like, how 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 does that happen? How does that always happen for for Lincoln Riley in that offense? And you, you hit the nail on the head, Martin. It's how does the defense handle the moving parts? Because what Oklahoma likes to do is they'll get in that shotgun formation, the pistol, with a guy in the backfield. They'll take the snap. They'll have two guys on the offensive line pull around to one side, and they'll open up a hole for the running back. They'll do that once, maybe twice, maybe even a third time. And right when Nebraska's confident and settled in and thinking, okay, you see the snap and you see the offensive line moving this way to open up that gap. Then Spencer Rattler's going to pull that ball back and hit one of their receivers on a big crossing route or a big post route or someone up the seam. So it's a matter of Nebraska's defense being able to stay like a step ahead of what Oklahoma wants to do offensively. And yeah, that's big time, big time easier said than done. Oklahoma's offense has a lot of moving parts. The air raid offense that Lincoln Riley runs is so unique because yes it's an air raid but it's so prevalent on the run setting all this stuff and great offensive line play so yeah uh it there Oklahoma is a lot of bells and whistles but they're bells and whistles that are very very effective and just being able to follow along with that is going to be very very vital for Nebraska so that's my my big key big key as well but if you wanted something else to look at very briefly, it's Nebraska's skill positions. Who's going to be available for Adrian yeah. Martinez to throw the ball to, right? Like, we're unsure about the statuses of Oliver Martin and Omar Manning, both of whom missed the Buffalo game. We're not sure about Vokalek. Austin Allen left the game hurt. And Xavier Betts might be unavailable. So, yeah, it's it's going to be really tricky. And, like, besides Samari Torrey, like, Who's Nebraska going to have to throw the ball to? That's going to be one of the big storylines for me, in addition to slowing down the bells and whistles of Oklahoma. Well, let's look on the other side. Skill positions there for Oklahoma. Marvin Mims, that's the name that most Husker fans would recognize that the secondary will have to slow down. Mario Williams, as well as Jaden Hasselwood in there, each with 86 and 66 yards receiving, respectively, each with two touchdowns on the year. In my opinion, the weakest part of this defense is the secondary. Can you trust them to slow down Mims, Williams, and Hasselwood this weekend? I mean, it's going to be tough, right? Oklahoma's wide receivers don't have the gaudy numbers quite yet, but it's because they've they've done a lot more like spreading the ball around and things. OU's good, and those receivers are like very, very capable of getting open. It, it, to me, it comes down to discipline, right? Like whether or not it. it Oklahoma, there there are bound to be an instance or two in this game where OU just gets a guy wide, wide open, just completely naked, no no defender within 10 yards of the guy, right? Like, it's going to be keeping things like that to a minimum because Riley's bound to scheme something up. He is. It's kind of the way he operates, and that's what's made him so successful as one of the best offensive minds in college football. But for Nebraska's experienced secondary, it's going to be a matter of staying disciplined, watching for cues, not biting, and really just trying to keep everything in front of them. And if they can do that, I think they have a chance. But that wide receiver room is just so talented for Oklahoma that, you know, keeping them completely, completely quiet is just never going to happen. Maybe the biggest disappointment from the game against Buffalo was the offensive line play. And and this has been two games now where they've started out pretty rough and they've finished stronger than they started. 
but even against Buffalo, the comeback for them from beginning to end was not nearly as great as the improvement in the Fordham game. But that's going to be key this week because on the other side, for Oklahoma, Isaiah Thomas, Perian Winfrey, Reggie Grimes. Um, Thomas and Winfrey each with two sacks. Reggie Grimes with one and a half. Martin, how big is the offensive line play? In, in my opinion, it's the key to the game for this team in terms of A, covering the spread if they can, and B, finding a way to win. You've got to be able to protect. Can they do it this weekend? First of all, let me say, I can't believe Oklahoma's defense is back to being not just respectable, as people were saying a couple years ago. They're, they're great. They're always generating pressure now. Their defense corner, Alex Grinch, his big thing is generating havoc, right? So that offensive line is going to have their hands full, especially the pass rushers you just mentioned, along with Nick Bonito, who's probably one of the best players on the defense and one of the best in the country. So, yes, the offensive line is going to have their hands full, but I do think the one thing that has been a problem with the Sooners' defense, despite the massive strides and improvements made, is that they can be overly aggressive at times, right, where they shoot right up, they bite, they bite too hard, and I think knowing Frost, I think that can work to their advantage by trying to spread the ball horizontally like quick. I, I know swing passes are made fun of. But this is a good example of when you would use such a play to counter pass rushers that get up really fast. And that helps out your offensive line. But overall, the offensive line that is, I think that is going to be the marquee matchup to watch for. Because the offense I, I was just reading on the Buffalo game, the offensive line passing grade on PFF was somewhere in the 30s or 20s. The average is 60. And that's a center Cam Jurgens having a passing blocking grade of 75. And that was against Buffalo. So Martinez is going to bail them out, but I just don't know how how much magic he has against Oklahoma. Yeah, OU's defense is quick, man. They've they, it was the first thing that was hit on besides Spencer Rattler is Oklahoma's defense. Like it just pops out how quickly Oklahoma just flies, just flies off the ball. And you're right though that 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 it's a good and a bad thing. It can be aggressive, but it can also be seen as like is Oklahoma a little bit too aggressive? And that's where swing passes. Maybe it's a double move. Maybe it's getting the option involved, getting Martinez out of the pocket quickly. Those things have to be prevalent, but you know if the offensive line can't protect, none of that works. And where Martinez was able to slide out of a couple of sacks against Buffalo, I don't think they're going to be as fortuitous against the Sooners. The big takeaway from the offensive lineman that spoke on Monday was that their unit just flat out wasn't playing good enough. It's something that's been the massive takeaway this season and something that like it's good, in my opinion, that they're picking up on and noticing. But yeah, it's it's going to be really tough to keep Oklahoma away from Adrian, but that's where Frost and Lubick are going to have to get a little bit creative in finding ways to either get him out of the pocket quickly or get the ball moving quickly. How dangerous is hope in this game? It's a rivalry game. Nebraska would not have had hope if they'd lost to Buffalo, but you look at some of the scores that Oklahoma has been able to put up, the Tulane victory sticks out that, hey, you can come back at any point, right? That's what you can think. How dangerous is hope for Nebraska? Well, I say maybe before, like some fans are expecting, oh, I just want the game to be competitive. But I think the dangerous of the danger hope comes afterwards. If this game's like a fourteen point Oklahoma win or even like Nebraska covers the spread, there's gonna be a lot of like talk like, Oh, okay, this 
it's Nebraska team. It's up to something. So I think it's more like afterwards, the result after. Because I think the consensus right now is that I just hope for a competitive game. Not many are expecting Nebraska win. But like, if the game's like competitive, then everyone's be like, well, I think Frost has got this ship starting to turn around, and then things are rolling. People think things are rolling and stuff like that. So I think the danger comes afterwards. Yeah, hope is always a dangerous thing, and it's good that Nebraska has it and that they're confident because, I mean, you never want to go into a game against Oklahoma like on the heels of like two losses. Gosh, if Nebraska were one and two, I one bad, one bad thing could lead to the game getting out of hand very quickly. But Oklahoma has proven vulnerable at home over the last couple of years. That is the point I will draw back to. Last season, big noon kickoff, Oklahoma lost at home to Kansas State. The previous season, 2019, with uh, Jalen Hurts, they lost to Kansas State and Manhattan. That was an early kickoff, too. In 2018 at home, Oklahoma, I believe, had to go to overtime to beat Army, and if they didn't, it was a one-score. It was a 28-21. I can't remember whether or not that was settled in overtime or not. The point is... And maybe it was the two-lane game, and maybe that was Oklahoma's one allotted stinker at home, right? Which is what OU's bound to do once during the season. Is Oklahoma's not this unbeatable juggernaut, right? OU lost twice last year. In addition to K-State, they lost at Iowa State. So, hope is dangerous, but it's something that, like, Nebraska fans shouldn't feel hopeless, if that makes any sense. The way Nebraska's defense has been playing, it should be able to keep them around at least for a half. That's my that's my that's my train of thought heading into this. Nebraska has the defensive pieces to hang with Oklahoma for 30 minutes. I don't think that that's a bold, outlandish, or like wild take. Um, so I think hope is dangerous, but I think that it's not unwarranted based on what we know about Oklahoma and non-conference play at home and what we know about Nebraska's defense. This kind of touches a little bit on this, but as we wrap things up here, what should Husker fans be satisfied with? I think they should be satisfied with how the defense plays. As we express, we keep talking about how good this defense is. I think it's going to do a fine job. Oklahoma is missing some pieces, as Lana said. They are vulnerable. And, I mean, their running backs, it's just Kennedy Brooks and Eric Gray. They got two walk-ons behind. It's not like their ground game is world-breaking. They're good. It's good, but it's not Sooners of the past offenses that we know. It's not like Joe Mixon or Samaje P. Ryan. So I think coming hope with the defense and on offense, hopefully you get to see Samar Toure make plays because no matter who, what other receivers are on, Toure is going to get open. And hopefully Martinez has time in the pocket or maybe makes his own match and he finds them. So I think it's Toure and watching specifically our front seven in action. Yeah, I think that the biggest thing that I'm looking for, aside from the defense, is just a clean game. I'm looking for, like, turn a turnover or two is bound to happen, right? But I'm looking for no muffed punts, no missed field goals or extra points, which, I mean, that's something we didn't even talk about the Buffalo game, is right. field goal kickers going combined one for seven. Like, that can't happen, especially with how good Oklahoma's kicker is. So, it, to me, it's looking at cleaning up the little things. No offensive pass interference penalties. Just handling the things that the things like that 
are what I'm looking for. If Nebraska can get some of that done, uh, and Martin alluded to like the hope after this game, I think hope after this game will be a lot higher if Nebraska is able to do the little things correctly. And you know that's the stuff that won't reflect in the final scoreline. If Oklahoma wins by 30, Oklahoma wins by 30. But you'd have to be encouraged if Nebraska can get through a game against a team that's likely going to be in the college football playoff without just completely, not only just shooting itself in the foot, but shooting its foot right off. That's what I'd be happy with. All right, that'll do it for our Husker football talk. Time to move on to 1-2-N-U, but we'd like to thank Martin Hers, assistant editor for the DN, hopping on to talk Huskers with us. And as we move to 1-2-N-U, Landon and I are both 1-5. and We'll hope to get the ship righted coming up next. All right, time for 1-2-N-U. Big thanks to Martin Hers for joining us here on Scarlet Fever. I'm Grant Hanson alongside Landon Wirt. And hopefully things turn around this week. Landon is 1-5. I am also 1-5. The only game we got right was Nebraska-Fordham. Uh, so, uh, yeah, here we go, I guess. We'll see. This has, to, this has to turn around, right? This has to be the week, right? I mean, I, I thought for sure Texas and Arkansas, that had to be just – that had to be it. And then – Sure enough, that happened last week, and Arkansas just rolls Texas. I mean, how shocked were you for on that one? Yeah, welcome to the, the SEC, Texas. God, I guess, right? Um, that was really surprising for me. I spent a lot of time digging into that, and I thought for sure that Texas was going to do that for me. And then uh, the Ohio State debacle was an entire other mess. Like, not only does Ohio State not win by two touchdowns, but Ryan Day also loses outright his first ever right. collegiate regular season game. So I think that due to the bad luck that we have had, it can only get better from here. Law of and averages, that, right? Exactly. Law of averages. And that is my take. Well, here's hoping you're right. We'll remind you of the rules. Land and I are picking against the spread. So, for example, should one team be favored by six and a half points? You pick that team. They have to win by six and a half or more. And the reverse is true as well. So even if, for example, in Nebraska-Oklahoma, if Nebraska loses the game but we pick Nebraska and they're within the 22-point spread, that is counted as a win. So these are the rules, and we will pick, again, our top two college football matchups of the week that we like, and then the Nebraska game as well. So it's 1-2 and you. I'm 1-5, and five, so is Landon. And Landon, your first pick or pick of the week is? The Cincinnati Bearcats. I'm getting back, I'm getting hot, and I'm getting confident with one of my favorite and most undervalued teams, I believe, this college football season. Cincinnati's really good. People forget that this pretty much exact same team took a very, very good Georgia team down right down to the wire in the Peach Bowl last year. Cincinnati's very good. Um, I like the Bearcats. I do not like Indiana. Uh, going in, I had really high hopes. Michael Penix Jr. is still one of my favorite players in college football, but I cannot overlook the way he struggled against Iowa. I know a couple of things weren't on him entirely, but the three interceptions is a really big worrying sign for me against a Cincinnati defense that's really good. I, You know, Cincinnati hasn't played two great opponents to start the season, Miami and Ohio, of Ohio and Murray State, but, I mean, Cincinnati only allowed seven to Murray State, and Miami, Ohio, a MAC team, I believe, only scored 10 points. 
Cincinnati's good. Uh, I like Desmond Ritter a lot. I think he's a really good quarterback. I think that a four-point spread, I believe it is now, what I had it at is three and a half, is way too disrespectful. I think that Cincinnati beats Indiana by two scores. Give me the Bearcats 27-13 to 13 over Indiana. Man, how about Michael Penix Jr.? A disaster start against Iowa. And granted, Iowa's a great defense. Yes. You know, I, I think that's very clear. It makes me you know, incredibly nervous to face them in November because, in my opinion, that's a college football playoff defense. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a college football playoff offense. It might not even be a top 25 offense. But that defense is phenomenal. And so you can kind of look away from Michael Penix's start against them. But, man, even against Idaho this last week, 11 of 16, 68 yards and two touchdowns. I mean, that is an incredibly underwhelming stat, especially in terms of the passing yardage. Yeah, it, it, it's really troublesome. I think the uh, alarm bells are starting to ring on the Indiana football front. And, you know, I never like to use the F word. I never like to call any team fraudulent. But if Indiana is run off the field this week against Cincinnati, you you know, you might have to start considering whether or not that magical 2020 campaign was legit or if it might be might have been just like a mirage for lack of a better word. I like Indiana. I don't want that to be the case. But Cincinnati's really good, and I think that the latter is much more likely to happen than Indiana keeping it a close game throughout. All right, well, my first pick of the week is one I like a lot. Miami, number 24, somehow, after just barely surviving Appalachian State. Also, that cat, that cat <laughs> did definitely survive. Barely I survived. I don't know. I don't know if it fell through that. I, there, I heard it, like, fell through the flag. Like, they didn't even catch it. Uh, but, yeah, so Miami barely gets by Appalachian State. This week, they play Michigan State. They return home, and... Man, I really like the Spartans here. I, I just, I, I, you know, you talk about using the F word. Miami, to me, is fraudulent. I, I, I think it's incredibly obvious. They did not look good at all against Alabama, and who would? That's fine. But you turn around against Appy State the next week, and you just barely squeak by them. And, and granted, Appy State is a good football program. It consistently pushes Power 5 opponents. And we've seen it before. But still, a two-point victory... Uh, that's not a good sign. It is not a good sign. And Michigan State, on the other hand, Mel Tucker's teams have been really up and down here. Or really, Michigan State last year, just in general, has been really up and down. They got out to a fast start against Northwestern, and they did against Youngtown State, uh, Youngtown State as well. Um, but I, I think they win here. At least they certainly cover the spread. I'll take them 24-21 to win outright. But Miami by a touchdown after last week? That's way too much. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I'm also on the respect App State train. I think App State's a very good football team. They're consistently pushing, you know, a top 25 ranking. But a team that also probably should be pushing a top 25 ranking is Michigan State. I mean, God, thinking back to how they just dominated Northwestern in Week 1, and I've liked Kenny Walker since when he was at Wake Forest just cutting teams up last year. I think he's a very good player. So, yeah, I think that that spread is way too generous to the Spartans, or to Miami, rather, uh, who will be on home turf. But, yeah, I agree that this might not be the year for Derek King and friends either. Well, again, Husker fans, that'll be a big one to watch. Nebraska heading to East Lansing next weekend. So I will have my eye on that one simply because of the Husker connection 
as well. Your second pick. Yeah, uh, Penn State-Auburn. I'm really, really dialed into this one, which will be a matchup of top 25 teams and a night game at Happy Valley. It's going to be really tough for Auburn. I'm giving Auburn, I'm saying it now, clip it, Auburn has a negative 5% chance of going into Happy Valley on Saturday night when it's going to be rocking there and winning. Um, I do think the Tigers are an improved team. I I I'm tend to be on Team Bo Nix as team as opposed to team I hate Bo Nix and think he's bad. Um, I do think he's a good quarterback, but Auburn t- always tends to fall stor- short in situations like this. Um, Auburn has played Akron and Kennesaw State in preparation to this game. Meanwhile, Penn State beat a Ball State team that won the MAC championship last year and also won at a very good Wisconsin team. So I believe that Penn State's the team that's more in rhythm right now at this point in the regular season and will be more adept to respond if they're down early or you know be able to just smother the opposing team. The only potential drawback I have to that is maybe Penn State's a little bit distracted with the James Franklin to USC stuff, but... I think it won't matter. I'm taking Penn State minus six. I believe that Penn State beats Auburn 33-20. to 20. Those picks are going 2-0. That is the uh, college game day game, if I remember correctly. My second pick, I need a win. I really do. I truly do. I don't want Fordham to be the only one. <laughs> and so I think the only place I can go on the schedule to find this is Alabama at Florida. Bama's favored by 15.5 points. And I got them winning 48-28. I just, again, you got to go with trends here. Alabama has consistently consistently done a good job of embarrassing opponents like this. Florida is ranked 11th. You talk about um, the James Franklin to USC stuff. In my opinion, I think the Will Muschamp to USC stuff is even more distracting on that that end. Uh, So... I, I just I think Alabama is is for real beyond for real and I know that's kind of crazy to say to, to say Alabama is for real uh, but I think they'll prove it again against Florida this week and listen the win against Miami doesn't look as great now but I think this Florida one when they cover that 15 and a half point spread is going to be one that many people will look back on as they go through the rest of the schedule is where people realize yeah this Alabama team is just as good as any of the other ones. Yeah, I like that. I don't know if I've been super impressed with Florida's two-quarterback system they've got going on so far, Uh, and I think Alabama's defense is going to eat either of them up. So it is the swamp, but I don't really love Florida's chances at home at all. I like both those picks, just like I like mine. So I am ready for all of them to lose because I've liked all of them so far. Uh, But yeah. Now time for the NU, Nebraska, Oklahoma, the spread, 22 and a half. It might be 22 to pair it even, depending on where you look. Landon, how do you see this game in Norman on big noon kickoff going down? Yeah, there are a lot of things that I have been breaking down and looking at over the last 24 hours with regards to this game, but the pressure here is squarely on the shoulders of Oklahoma. The last time Oklahoma hosted a big noon kickoff they lost to Kansas Mm -hmm. State last year at home Spencer Rattler looked really shaky threw a couple of picks K-State was able to dominate on the ground behind Deuce Vaughn K-State won I'm not saying that Oklahoma like is this unbeatable juggernaut right 
But I do think something that's going to be really critical for Nebraska on Saturday is winning that early stretch. If Nebraska can come out in the first quarter and make a statement early, whether it's a defensive stop or an early touchdown drive, or better yet, both of those things, I think that Nebraska's going to have a puncher's chance. Now, I don't think Nebraska's going... I mean, I I hate to say this, but it, it will surprise me significantly if Nebraska wins. Nebraska has, I think, an 8% chance, according to ESPN's FPI, to do so. But I do think Nebraska can cover the spread. I think Oklahoma will pull away late because they are a more talented team, they have the more talented coach, and they have the more talented offense. But give me Nebraska 24, Oklahoma 40. That's where I've that's where I've landed with things. Yeah, that's where I'm at. All right, so Landon has him covering. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't have him cover. I've gone back and forth on this. I, I, I think this morning I thought, yep, they're going to cover. And there's definitely a case to be made that Nebraska can cover the 22 points, right? If, if Tulsa can hang with Oklahoma, Nebraska certainly can. This is probably the thought that many uh, bettors here in this state, uh, <laughs> just kidding, uh, outside of the state who are Nebraska fans uh, would have. I'm having Oklahoma taking the victory 45-17. to 17. I, I, I think this is a replay of Ohio State basically, <laughs> from a year ago. I think Nebraska competes very well in the first half. In fact, I think they're probably within a score or two. But the way things have gone in the past is once you get into the second half, something goes horribly, horribly wrong. In fact, in almost every one of these big games, with the exception of, I believe, year one, I think year two, maybe, of Scott Frost against Ohio State. I think that was year one. Yeah, year one at Ohio State. Uh Nebraska started strong and just not been able to keep it going. And I, I, I can't see that not, you know, that's going to continue. Pressure from the defense is going to be key, trust me. Uh, but And I think they can bring it. But if Sitkowski for Illinois can dot up Nebraska's offense for 130 yards and a couple of scores, what's Spencer Rattler going to do? And, and to me, that's why they're going to cover that 22.5 or 22 point spread. Yeah. It, it, I. That makes sense. Spencer Rattler, I mean, we've we've heard about it all week, right? He's one of the best quarterbacks in the country. He's second favorite to the Heisman or favorite, depending on how you want to look at it, either right ahead of Alabama's Bryce Young or right behind him. He's good. You know, it's, it's, it's a challenge unlike, I think, Nebraska's really ever faced under Scott Frost. The only thing comparable, I would say, is Justin Fields at Ohio right. State. Rattler's very good. He's going to be a very high draft pick, all this stuff. And more importantly than to slowing him down is is slowing Lincoln Riley's offense down because, man, Oklahoma's offense is a machine. When it's working, it's really great. It's going to be very, very difficult um, for Nebraska's defense to do that. I certainly think they're confident heading into that, but, yeah, I it, – it, the way you put that, it, it, it's very dicey, and Oklahoma will probably score a lot of points. Well, Lan and I both went 0-3 last week with our picks, and guaranteed, uh, even though both of us need a 3-0 week just to get to a game of 500, uh, one of us, since we differ on the Nebraska pick, will not get there. Uh, so we'll see how things turn out. For now, we're both 1-5. Again, hopefully that changes this week. Husker Volleyball Talk coming up next.
All right, that was one, two, and you, Landon's picks. Snagging the Bearcats to cover the spread. Penn State to do the same. And Nebraska as a dog to cover against Oklahoma. My picks on the other side, Michigan State wins outright against Miami. Alabama covers their 15.5-point spread against Florida. And Oklahoma covers that 22-point spread against Nebraska. We're both 1-5 on the year, so hopefully things turn around this week. But now let's turn to the women's side of Nebraska athletics, and we'll begin with Nebraska volleyball. Huskers on a two-game losing streak. They'll take on Louisville on Saturday. And the Huskers were able to build against Utah on Saturday a 2-0 lead. But reverse sweep, Utah wins. Danny Drews was incredible. John Cook said she's worth the price of admission. He said it on Monday. He reiterated that on Saturday night. And uh, Husker fans certainly got to see an incredible outside carry their team to victory against Nebraska. But then Utah turns around and in a stadium of 400 fans instead of 8,000, drops one to Boise State, who was unranked on Monday, so that was a wild turn for Utah and probably not good for Nebraska's ranked resume. And then the loss to Stanford on Tuesday night. Huskers struggled to hit really uh, in every set except the second one. They won the second set handily 25-12, to but just couldn't find uh, anything too terribly consistent in the other two sets. And despite the first set being 25-19 to Stanford, that, that set was way way, way, way more towards Stanford than the final score actually showed. But your thoughts on that this last week, really, Landon, and a big challenge ahead with Louisville on Saturday. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty difficult. I think that one of the things that we had said about Utah going into this match was, I mean, we hit on it a little bit with Thomas last week, was their defense, right? Like Utah's calling card thus far uh, this season has been the way it's been able to play defense and, you know, the loss to Boise State really seems like an aberration on that front. And I don't know, maybe Utah just exhausted its last defensive legs, but really solid performance. I mean, Nebraska did hit, you know, 202, a little bit better than Utah, but holding that 78 63 advantage in digs and 10 to 8 in blocks, which has been like the thing that Utah's been able to do this year is get record blocks. Uh, so that was able to travel, but uh, yeah, it's. It's difficult to pinpoint the fact that, you know, you allow three consecutive Utah victories. Like, that's got to be pretty demoralizing on that front. Like, it's never easy to think you have such control in a match, especially behind your home fans, and just let that slip like that. Uh, really tough to pinpoint what exactly went wrong for Nebraska there. Um, but, yeah, and then you just see that momentum from that, like that negative momentum it appears anyways, carry over uh, to the Stanford match just last night. Yeah, and you could tell. I mean, the, fir- the first set for Nebraska at the match, there's there's definitely some rust that was still carrying over. I, I think you know, we talked so much after the Creighton victory about the Huskers' defense, and to be sure, I think that still is going to be the calling card for this team as well, but, man, it has not been there in the last couple of matches. 235 is what Stanford hit in the victory over Nebraska on Tuesday night, Utah hit 191, and you talk about Danny Drews, man, man, what an per- incredible individual performance for her against Nebraska, 27 kills on nearly 70 swings, uh, and that that's something that you don't always see, she is, uh, was set nearly twice as many times as any other Utah uh, hitter, so that was a really incredible individual performance, and there was another one. On Sat or on Tuesday for Stanford and Katie Baird, 
who had 21 kills on 39 swings, nearly hit 500. Only two errors. You know, Stanford's 5-2 and two right now. They're ranked 16th in this most current poll. I think they'll go up a lot higher uh, as the season goes on. And I think one of the things is, you know, Katie Baird, she's a sophomore, if I remember correctly. Uh, Sammy Francis, uh, who had 13 kills. She was one, one of three total Stanford uh, hitters with double-digit kills. She made her debut as a freshman. And so you have a couple of these younger hitters for Stanford who are just a little bit ahead of Nebraska's pin hitters. That made the difference in the match on Tuesday, and you could really see it. But, man, what an individual performance from Katie Baird. And this schedule for Stanford is incredibly difficult. I mean, the Cardinal are finding themselves playing ranked opponent after ranked opponent after ranked opponent. They head uh, to face Louisville, I believe, this week. Uh, I can check in a little bit further on that. But, man, it's been a crucible for the Cardinal. And, and they're ranked 16 now, but look out. You know, people see the back-to-back losses to 20 and 16. The Stanford loss, in my opinion, will look better down the line um, because of the schedule that Stanford has played here initially and the way they should finish this year. Yeah, you've got Kentucky coming up, defending national champions, right, for Stanford. So if Stanford's able to make a statement there, goodness, after beating Nebraska and Stanford, who knows how much the Cardinal will be able to swing up in the rankings. But yeah, I mean, you did hit the nail on the head properly there. It's two back-to-back nights where, I mean, yes, the losses are obviously pretty demoralizing, especially the fashion that that uh, second one came in. But... uh or the first one came in, excuse me. But you also, the other way to look at it, right, it's just like, okay, like two really, really good players among the best in the country that have good chances at, fin- at finishing as All-Americans when this thing is said and done. They were just able to have really good nights against us. So, you know, there's a couple ways to look at how that played out. Like the defense is obviously a little bit concerning, but the players that Nebraska's allowing this to happen to are very good. The third, third flip side of that is there will be players like that night in and night out in the Big Ten. So it's obviously something that needs to be corrected, but, I mean, it's either an aberration where two really good players had really good nights and helped lead their teams to victory, or it's going to be the start of something that could potentially be a long-term problem for head coach John Cook. Final note on that Stanford crucible of a schedule. Their only unranked opponents they played were Villanova and Villanova and Temple. That was at the beginning weekend for Collegiate Volleyball, the 27th and 28th of August. Both ended in sweeps. And then after that, listen to this, Florida, number five, Texas, number one, Minnesota, number 13, Penn State, number 18. They went two and two in that stretch. And then if you add in Nebraska, they're three and two. They'll round it out with number eight, Kentucky, before heading into Pac-12 play. Uh, So you talk about how hard Nebraska's non-conference schedule is has been man Stanford is even a degree higher yeah that's aggressive scheduling it's really what you like to do to test your team when it comes to tournament time and that's what the good teams in collegiate volleyball do they go out and challenge themselves early on so that way when you're in a conference like the Pac-12 or the Big Ten you're able to withstand these challenges from teams night in and night out and then come the tournament you're either like really familiar with the style of play because it's that intense high level volleyball or better yet you're familiar with one of the teams you're going up against because you already got to play them in the non-conference slate so it's 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 really aggressive from the Cardinal, but I really do think it'll probably benefit them and Nebraska, too, to an extent when, you know, as we get into the later months of the season, you'd have to think. Two players who saw limited time on the court on Tuesday night against Stanford for Nebraska are your two kill leaders. 
in Lexi Sun, first on the team, and then Maddie Kubik right behind her. Kills for those two come in at 73 for Sun and uh, 65 for Kubik. Uh, Ka- Kayla Caffey's actually climbed up there to second after last night's kill numbers were put into the lineup or into the statistics on the website. But, man, your kill leader's off the floor. Maddie Kubik does come in a little bit. She did some serving, but not in a huge um, – doesn't play in a huge capacity so clearly coach cook wanted to take the freshman that he started in Allie Batenhorst uh Whitley Lonstein and and uh, Lindsey Krause and test them against this Stanford lineup uh even if that meant the Huskers lost that had to be the strategy right because again no sun on the floor no Matty Kubik it was a look for the future yes Yeah, that's the story following the Stanford match. I mean, when I first came across the starting lineup on Twitter, even I was just a tad bit confused. I I get it, I do, but I mean, is that just the strategy to sacrifice a game that you 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 go in knowing that you probably won't win for experience? I mean, it's a it's not a Big Ten opponent like the loss won't hurt a ton in terms of like interconference seating and tournament seating and things like that. It's a road loss to Stanford and it's a difficult environment, I suppose, but I don't know. It's tough to me to wrap my head around like sacrificing, sacrificing, not winning in order to gain experience. Like from a college football perspective, that's what Nebraska playing Fordham is for. Like not Nebraska playing Oklahoma to make that comparison. So I don't know. It's difficult, but if there's a coach in the country that knows what he's doing, it's John Cook, and I'd be better not to second-guess it, and you know, well, who knows? Well, and then to go on a further, you know, college football analogy for you, right, like, the biggest difference is that a non-conference loss in college football could doom your season. Yeah. You know, in volleyball, there's so many games, there's exactly. so many games in the Big Ten season, it doesn't mean as much, and I, and I think, you know, it's really clear listening to some of the post-game comments uh, from Coach Cook that... The thought here is about December and not September. And it, it's a long season. And if there's any team that has the talent to think about December in September more than anything else, it is Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, and there, I mean, there are certainly other teams who can do that throughout the country. Texas comes to mind. But, you know, you, you think that, man, we were there with Stanford. We were competing with Stanford for the fourth set a team that I think will probably finish inside the top 10 that'll make its usual run in the NCAA tournament. But we're there, and we have no Lexi Sun and no Lawrence Difference. And the freshmen, although they weren't able to carry to victory, your two kill leaders, Allie Batenhorst and Lindsey Krause, both freshmen, both with 10 kills. Now the problem, both of them hit under 100, which is not good. Uh, But you got contributions out of those two players and you need more uh, but again all of this without arguably the two people the two players who if they were fully healthy and Lexi's son is um, but Lawrence difference isn't if those two are fully healthy you would assume those two would be your two leading um, killers yeah. right so they're not on the floor and you're still there with a the ranked team that says a lot and again as you mentioned it does not hurt the Big Ten standings for Nebraska they're going to be in the tournament either way, right? This loss is not going to all of a sudden knock them out of the NCAA tournament or, or send them on a spiral that will send them out of that. And so, again, if there's a team that can afford to play for experience against some of the best teams in the country, Nebraska's set up to do that. 
Yeah, that's a very it's a very very interesting luxury and one that is not considered by a lot of collegiate programs all too often. I feel like that's just like a very interesting and rare way to look at things. And I personally like didn't get it myself, but then I took a step back last night and thought, and I was like, okay, like this does make a lot of sense. It's just weird to think that you know Nebraska's in a position where it can do that, but that's just the way <laughs> that's just the way they're set up. So. Yeah, it will ultimately benefit in the long run. And having, you know, the the two freshmen, second, tied for second, I believe, in kills. Kayla Caffey had 12. Uh, but having that is good. Um, the hitting's got to get better, obviously. But that comes with time. And what better way to kind of have a trial-by-fire situation, for lack of a better word, than against Stanford as opposed to Nebraska's really banged up. It needs to roll out this starting lineup against, like, Wisconsin or Minnesota or something. So... From that perspective, it makes a lot of sense uh, what John Cook did. And, you know, you lose, obviously, but you're able... I mean, freshmen contributed for half of the Huskers' kills on Tuesday. Right. That's good. And the fact that, you know, Nebraska wasn't blown out and swept and competitive right at, right down until the end, went out firing in the fourth set, like, that's good. The loss obviously stings to lose two in a row, but as long as Nebraska is able to turn that around by the weekend, you'll forget all about this last week, I think, personally. Well, let's look ahead to the weekend. On Saturday, Nebraska will play Louisville, who is ranked uh, fifth yes. in the country. Uh, is this game or is this game still scheduled for the original 7 o'clock? I was trying to... Look ahead. Actually, yes, I think it is. It is, yes. Yes, it, it's next week's that might actually get shifted with the Nebraska-Michigan State game being later. It might not actually, too. But uh, still scheduled for seven uh, at the Devaney Center. So the Huskers return home once more, and they take on 8-0 and Louisville, who will play Kentucky on Wednesday, as we record this on Wednesday. So a win over Purdue already for the Cardinals. They are three and zero. Actually, well, they go three and zero against Purdue, sweep them, uh, and in fact, this year they have recorded in their past five matches five sweeps. They were taken to five sets by Arizona State, and they do have less ranked opponents on their non-conference schedule than Nebraska. But they'll take on Kentucky again tonight at seven. That's a big test before they come to Lincoln, but undoubtedly a formidable opponent coming to the Devaney Center on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, looking at their schedule, Louisville swept every single opponent except Arizona State. So running this all the way back to August 27th against Cal Poly, it's sweep of Cal Poly, sweep of A&M Corpus Christi. You go to five sets against Arizona State, then sweep Mizzou, sweep South Dakota, sweep Northern Kentucky, sweep Purdue, sweep Xavier. I will be stunned if that sweep streak continues tonight against Kentucky, but it, it does prove that Louisville, like obviously a top five team in the country, is is formidable, and I'm sure that they will be champing at the bit to have the opportunity to prove that they are a legitimate contender in this collegiate volleyball landscape against Kentucky. So, yeah, it is a formidable opponent coming to Lincoln. It will be very difficult. Two teams haven't. It's it's, a, it's an opponent that's very rare for Nebraska to match up against. The two teams haven't met since September uh, 2006. Ne- Louisville's never beaten Nebraska, so it's another really highly ranked opponent. They'll right. be looking to make a statement at the Devaney. Um, 
but yeah, uh, it, it will be very, very difficult for Nebraska on Saturday. And if Louisville can go 2-0 and this week, defeating Kentucky and Nebraska, they would certainly stake a very serious claim to break further into that top five, maybe inch into that top four. It'll be a balanced attack for the Cardinals. In fact, this team has five hitters over 50 kills and three hitters over 60 kills. The breakdown is as follows. 65 for Anna Stevens or Stevenson, Anna DeBeer with 64, and Aiko Jones with 62. Uh, the others in uh, each have 52 and 51, respectively. So it'll be, a, again, a balanced look, not a Danny Drews sort of setup here for the Cardinals. Does Nebraska continue with the youth movement this week, do you think, in the second match, or do they go back towards, hey, let's try to get Maddie Kubik and and uh, Lexi Sun in a little bit more. You know, and head coach John Cook will want to get uh, his team out of that little negative momentum slide, which can happen when you've got a lot of young players with not very much experience at the collegiate level. Um, you see a couple of games not go your way consecutively. You, those you know feelings start to kind of slide in. So I would think that Cook wants to, to bring out the horses, for lack of a better word, on Saturday night, uh, you would think. So... Yeah, I would be really surprised to not see the, the Suns and the, the Cubics of the world uh, in the starting lineup against Louisville. You'd have to think that Cook will be committed to stop, stopping that skid. Well, Nebraska, 6-2 and two on the year. They will look to avoid their first three-game losing streak since October 13, 2018, which they lost matches consecutively to Penn State, Wisconsin, and Minnesota over the course of one week. So Nebraska will take Louisville on on Saturday. The game is set for 7 p.m. And uh, in that match, Nebraska will play their fourth consecutive ranked opponent before beginning Big Ten play next weekend. Let's transition here to Nebraska women's soccer and a tough trip out to Arizona last weekend for the Huskers. Yeah, really difficult week for Nebraska women's sports in general. I mean, soccer going 0-2 in Arizona, which is relatively disappointing considering what we had expected from the two Arizona schools coming in and where we kind of expected Nebraska to be at. Um, in particular, the game against Arizona is particularly heartbreaking to lose, and we can get into more of that in a little bit. But, yeah, 0-2 is not the way you wanted to close things ahead of Big Ten play. Uh, so that's really a bummer. And, yeah, uh, just just yikes overall. That's my big, my big takeaway from the weekend for Nebraska soccer is yikes. Tough trip there for Nebraska. 1-0 loss to Arizona State and a 3-2 loss to Arizona. Despite starting the year 3-1, and Nebraska has now lost three of their last four. And they will play Purdue on Sunday to start Big Ten play. Big match, really, for the Huskers to start things. And Purdue, no slouch to begin the conference slate. The Boilermakers are 5-1-2. Their ties are Vanderbilt and Kentucky. First loss, and the only loss on the year, came to Notre Dame by a score of 1-0 just uh, under two weeks ago. And, again, they're on a three-game win streak. They've taken out St. Louis, Kansas State, and Colorado. Huskers are 8-4 all-time against Purdue, and they won the last game against the Boilermakers 2-1 in March of this year, 2021. Yeah, Purdue's a good team. Uh, they're led by you know a couple of seniors, one at the back, one at the front. Marissa Bova, their goalkeeper, senior, recorded 39 saves on the year. Pretty impressive. Uh, and their redshirt senior forward, Sarah Griffith, five goals in the regular season. So yeah, Purdue's no slouch. 
very, very good side. Um, it will be very, very difficult for Nebraska, I think, to you know overcome that losing skid and come away with you know a big victory to kick off conference play. As we kind of alluded to with volleyball, when you have a team that's comprised of so many young players, uh, a couple of losses can really hinder momentum, especially for players that aren't familiar with what it takes to win at the collegiate level. So it'll be very, very fascinating to see whether or not Nebraska can bounce back from that little losing spell. Uh, Where do you think the inconsistency comes from? It it comes up top, I think, and it also has been a little bit of Nebraska's defense not looking as strong. I mean, you give up the one goal to Arizona State, but you concede 11 shots, right? And then against Arizona, your, your back line's breached three times. So getting back to that defensive form Nebraska was in a bit earlier in the season when they were shutting teams out or allowing just one shot like they you know, did against Loyola or however few it was, no shots on target or something like that. Uh, So Nebraska really needs to dig back to that defensive form. And then on top of that, you know, Nebraska's got to be more clinical in the ta- in the attack. Mm-hmm. It was a be- it was better against Arizona, but taking ch- taking advantage of chances in the final third, um, just converting some of those opportunities. So situations like the one zero loss to UNO don't arise ever again. Um, and you know, if Nebraska was able to finish one of their eleven total shots it had against Arizona State, you know, we were maybe talking about a road trip where Nebraska's one tie and a loss. So just things like that. Uh, it's it's. It's things that can take, I mean, sometimes just once it happens, once the floodgates are back open, but those are some things that can really take time to reinstill in a team that's kind of struggling for confidence a little bit. So I would say that the defensive cleanup and taking advantage of opportunities in the final third are where Nebraska can improve. Ten total matches remain for Nebraska, all in the conference schedule. Purdue, Maryland, Rutgers, Michigan State, Northwestern, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin on Senior Day, Illinois, and Minnesota. Do you see a stretch in there, Landon, that you think this team can get on a run in? Uh, when you look at that schedule, what looks like the hardest sector? What what, what where's some of the easier stuff uh, for this team? Yeah, the Big Ten's a gauntlet. I got to preface it by saying that the Big Ten is a very very good conference. Uh, to me. I think that – what do I think? I think that the beginning of Nebraska's schedule, uh, at least Purdue-Maryland maybe, is a little bit easier. Rutgers is very good. I believe Rutgers may have won the Big Ten last year. So, you know, the three of Nebraska's first four games appear to be, like, kind of winnable, I think. Uh, Michigan State and Maryland and Purdue, anyways, Rutgers will be a different beast. But I think this this opening stretch right here, if Nebraska can come out with positive results in three of its first four, get right back on the front foot, because you don't want to wait too long, especially with what happened in Arizona happening. So if Nebraska can come away with anywhere from six to ten points in these opening four matches, uh, which is cer- something that's certainly possible, uh, you'd have to think that Nebraska's will be a little bit more confident when the back half for the back half of the schedule, which is a lot rougher with Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, uh, and then Illinois, which is a bit of a let off, and then Minnesota. So the back half I would say is a little bit more top heavy. Um so if Nebraska wants to get this thing rolling, I would say it has to happen in the first half of the season. Nebraska meets Purdue on Sunday again. That is a one oh five start. That is uh, televised on BTN Plus. You can find the radio broadcast on KRNU again Nebraska 8 and 4 all time against Purdue women's soccer won the last one 2 to 1 in March 
of this year. They'll continue with Maryland next, who is 4-2-2, two, and two, and then Rutgers, who is 4-2. So that'll do it for us here on Scarlet Fever. We talk the game of the century as Nebraska faces off against Oklahoma in Norman in college football this week. We gave you our picks for the week, 1-2 and U. Hopefully things turn around there. We talked Husker Volleyball and Nebraska Women's Soccer. So it's another big week ahead for Husker Athletics, and we'll recap it all for you next week. Again, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Landon Words for Landon. You can find me at Hanson, H-A-N-S-E-N, 15 underscore Hanson. Go follow the Daily Nebraskan at Daily NEB on Twitter and also at DN Sports. And go to thedailynebraskan.com for all sorts of written coverage this weekend of Nebraska athletics. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been Scarlet Fever.